Running Lifestyle Culture, the podcast. This is going to be episode two, season two. I'm Manny Ovola, physiotherapist, Nike running coach, and I've started to dabble in health and lifestyle consulting and just trying to keep people as active as possible. I'm really enjoying it, really enjoying a pivot, but my biggest passion, as you all know, is running and how the lifestyle and culture breeds into that. We always have different challenges when we're running, you know, how to prevent ourselves from injury, how to stay as fit as possible, stay on our plan. And I think this episode today will help you do that. As you know, if you've listened to my podcast before, the guest introduces themselves. So I'm going to hand over to my guest. Welcome. Thanks a lot for having me on, Manny. My name is Jason Torrey. I'm a sports physical therapist uh, based out of New York State in the United States. Um, I've been a physical therapist for about five years and mostly working in sports outpatient orthopedic settings. Um, really, really focused on uh, the treatment of endurance athletes, but in addition to that, uh, team sport athletes kind of... Um, getting them in from, from that late stage rehab back into return to sport performance. Uh, from a running standpoint, my, my background in, uh, in strength and conditioning and in run coaching is, is mostly with middle distance runners. Uh, so the, the topic of injury prevention is always one that goes through from, from a medical side of things and from a performance side of things. And a lot of people probably disagree uh, where, where they're coming from on that basis. That's right. This episode is going to be about injury prevention. Jason, I've been following you for a long time on Instagram. We just had a conversation yesterday, actually, in the DMs and only a short conversation um, on this Zoom call. And he's now here talking to us on this podcast. And I love that because um, you get to know somebody through the podcast. And um, I think that's amazing. So, Jason, did you run yourself? Yeah, I um, I ran growing up. Growing up, I, I really was. Uh, I was fortunate that I was a multi-sport athlete growing up. Because now knowing what we know about bone stress injuries and the importance of jumping and playing contact sports and all that kind of thing, by the time you're like 16 or 17, um, that was something that I just happened to do. So it's it's one of those. By the time you realize it, it's too late type things. That I was fortunate enough that I was in the right situation for that. Uh, played a lot of basketball. Uh, but when I finally kind of like quote unquote specialized in running, it was it was around age maybe 16 or 17, uh, mostly middle distance. Uh, I went to a uh, university that had a very, very strong middle distance program. So I didn't make their team and, and just ran club instead. And at that time, I kind of experimented with longer distances, running up to the marathon, back down. And uh, then kind of maybe, geez, five or six years ago, I decided to just go back to the track and uh, it's really been the most fun thing for me in, in, in life has just been middle distance running, running hard, running fast, not very long, and then not completely depleting your body so you can do it again <laughs> next week. Okay, I hear you, I hear you. Let's just go back with that because some people won't know what you're talking about when we talk about this kind of ability to do multi-sport and specialize so you just you just mentioned there that you did multi-sport when you were younger what what's what sports did you do when you were younger oh geez um yeah there was there was probably a time where i was playing uh both both american football and your football 
Uh, Soccer. There was <laughs> there was yeah. basketball, uh, baseball, lacrosse, and and throughout that it was kind of like this. Oh, I'm like pretty good at the conditioning side of things, and I have family members who ran cross country and ran track. Uh, my uncle uh, still has the school record for the university that I currently work at in 1500, which is a wow. What university weird, is that? Weird connection. Uh, University of Rochester. It's in uh, Rochester, New York, yeah. upstate New York. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, all throughout the year, I was doing different things. And when I did start to run, I was actually still playing basketball for for years too. Which now, looking back, I'm like, I have no idea how I was able to run indoor track and play basketball at the same time. That's, that's yeah. insane. Your te- your tendons must have been a bit sore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've definitely felt them. Yeah. So. Um, when we say multi-sport, you know, we, we just mean that you're doing a varied amount of sport when you're younger and um, and then you just mentioned about the bone stress injury. Can you just highlight so that if people don't know what we're talking about, yeah, they get yeah. to know. All right. So within the last couple of years, um, this, this group out of uh, Boston area, Adam 1040, he's, a, um, he's an MD and he's, he studies bone stress injuries. They've, they've done a lot, um, really kind of looking into the risk factors for developing bone stress injuries. And one of the very strong ones we see that we can't do much about is history of bone stress injury. So yeah, that's that's not inherently helpful for primary prevention or, or preventing your first bone stress injury. But what they did see just from longitudinal data is, is a lot of these athletes who played a lot of like contact plyometric-based sports when they were growing up, they were the ones who went on to have fewer bone stress injuries. But say somebody only ran or only played a single sport, um, those were those tended to be the athletes that had a higher incidence of bone stress injuries later on. And and obviously there's there's a lot of variables that go into that too. Um, we're, we're probably a long way away from figuring out what the causation is there. But the idea is that, well, during the formative period where your bone mass and bone density is being developed, you're really strengthening them and loading them through these like multi-direction plyometric movements that you just don't seem to get with running, swimming, cycling, something that's maybe like below the threshold needed for the bone to adapt. Yeah. So just to add a few, few things on there is, you know, if you're playing a sport that where you have to change direction lots of times, you're probably going to produce a lot more load and force through there. So, um, and having that really early on um, might reduce your risk. Is that is that correct? Might reduce your yeah. risk of bone stress injury. Uh, but unfortunately, once you do have one bone stress injury, your risk does go up. Um, I've read somewhere two hundred percent. Is that right? It, yeah, it seems to be like quite high. Yeah, uh, and and anyway, some of that might just be the same way that you got it the first time you continued to do the same sport or activity or quote unquote training error, which we may talk about in a little bit here. Yeah. Looking forward to that, that training error, that, that big thing that I used to rely on so much. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, so you, you know, you've done all that or done all those sports you've run and you got, you come back to running uh, but now you come back to running as a clinician. Do you think your perspective about running has changed? Like, yeah, it's it's hard to say. I I can't tell if my perspective has changed because I'm a clinician or because I've accumulated so many injuries in my lifetime that I would be here regardless. Oh wow! Um, tell us about your injuries. <laughs> no, let's go into these injuries. Come on. 
Oh, it's fascinating. And I, this is where I'm like a complete nerd about it because every time I, I do get an entry, I'm like, oh, this is, this is the chance to do a case study on myself. This is awesome. Yeah. Um, geez, I, I mean, probably the one that's recurred the most for me since I was 16 has been patel femoral pain. So the, probably the most common running injury that we see worldwide. Uh, you know, one of those chronic types of things where it comes on, the front of your knee hurts, might last for a couple weeks, might last for a couple months. You manage it, you crack on with life. Um, but uh, outside of that, geez, see, there's there's been a bout of Achilles tendinopathy, plantar heel pain. Uh, let's see, I had a, a strange uh, like meniscal injury that was MRI confirmed that it actually has a partial ACL tear. That one, that one cut me off for a little bit. Mm. Uh, and, and most recently, a hip flexor tendinopathy. So now I've, I've got the full chain. Wow. So hip, <laughs> knee, foot, he's got it all. So if you're on an injury, just come to Jason. Um, so, you know, in terms of your your career as a therapist, um, so over in the States, just, just, just kind of for our listeners, um, there are different types of therapists, right? There's like an athletic trainer and then um, there's a doctor of physio, physical therapy, right? So how, how does it differ just so that some of our listeners just get a bit of context? Yeah, so the um, this is a pretty popular topic even around where I am, the, like the main differences between the athletic trainer and the uh, physical therapist. I'd say like largely the difference is that the athletic trainer has so much more experience with the acute management of injuries. So they are so much better in just like the emergency response situations. What do you do when you see somebody go down? What do you need to think about all the steps that you have to take? Um, then where do they need to go? So they're kind of like this initial gatekeeper. Uh, we really don't get that type of education in physio school. I, I did a post-professional uh, residency training in sports physical therapy, which is kind of like a one-year master class in that type of stuff. But even that is like nowhere close to the amount of training needed to be as good as a, an athletic trainer in that area. Um, I'd say largely physical therapists are probably uh, more trained in that like day-to-day -day rehab, um, maybe like the appraisal of literature to get new current concepts to help with rehab. The return to sport testing side of things is definitely a, a popular area that's has been getting a little bit better in physiotherapy. Um, those would probably be the kind of like main two differences there. Amazing. So um, just for our listeners, I think the key thing and key reason why we're talking to Jason is because, you know, that that middle to late stage or if you're training and you're you're having issues, um, Jason and I are probably your go to. But if you're on a field and you want uh, immediate, you know, you've got a broken leg, those athletic trainers are going to be great, right? Because they're going to help <laughs> you and they, they put you in, into a splint if you've got a broken leg and they'll like really get you to the to the A&E department in the best shape possible. Um, but it just brings us on to basically why Jason's on here, because, um, you know, that that aspect of middle to late stage um, um management and recovery that's what jason and i really specialize in so um you know trying to um manage injuries when they happen um keep people as um 
as motivated as possible to stay on their programs, their rehabilitation programs. But then one of the key things that I think we need to really discuss and try and um, iron out, and this is why Jason's here, is injury prevention. So you've all heard it, and that's what this podcast is all about. So injury prevention. So um, let's try and let's try and define it. I mean, how would you define it, Jason? Well, that's good. I, I know that there's a really uh, popular semantics debate about should we call it injury prevention or should we call it injury risk reduction. Um, I, I use them interchangeably. I, I'm not particularly that that bothered by either term. We we know that we can't actually prevent all injuries. Uh, technically, there's some like in-depth statistical things that you could make the argument to say that you you can technically prevent injuries but um it's it's very much just to win a semantics argument so really what it is is uh if we took a cohort so group of runners and we followed them for a year and the normal injury rate would be so you know let's say 40 percent or something 40 percent of them would have a new injury uh if if we did some sort of thing, we'll say magic injury prevention solution, we gave that to all the runners and we followed them for the same cohort, we would see 25% injuries instead of 40%. So that that 15% reduction, we would call an injury prevention effect. We're basically, we, we want to try to prevent them from happening because it's a lot easier to do something like that and have it never happen than rehab the injury and have that on your track record because we know that a history of injury uh, makes you more likely to get injured again in the future, unfortunately. Yep. So in all, we, we, we want to prevent you from having those injuries. And um, so in the science world, we're, we're arguing around the, the specifics of what we should call it. But ultimately, um, we want to keep you moving, keep you running. So I think that's so important. And um, from your perspective, do you feel there are any, um, how do you, how do you start to explore this? Like if somebody comes into your clinic, how are you exploring injury prevention with them? Um, just, just say like, you know, this is a, this is somebody who's not been running very much. Um, let's say four weeks. Um, how do you start to explore injury prevention with somebody who's been running for four weeks and they have, um, no history of running and they're kind of no history of sport. Um, at a young age, so they, the bone stress injury risk is, is maybe high. How would you start to explore that, Jason? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> that's where it, it definitely has to be on a, at a case-by-case basis. So specific populations of runners, there's there are going to be certain things that we turn towards a little bit sooner than others. So in the one that you described, the novice runner, uh, fortunately for them, they, they haven't had a running injury yet. So... Um, unlike most of the runners we see clinically, they don't have a history of running injuries to predict that future running injury. Uh, so that's the fortunate. Unfortunately, they're in a group that does seem to be at higher risk <laughs> to develop a running injury. Um, so we think, and we, we don't have great evidence for this because it's really hard to actually study this. We think that, that like a, a training load spike or doing too much too soon is like a primary factor for injury development. We don't know what too much is and we don't know what too soon is, unfortunately. Uh, but for the runner who's only been running for four weeks, uh, I definitely would want to look to see what is their other previous injury history. So maybe they had an ankle sprain or you know, something like that un- unrelated to running in, their, in, the, in the past. Um, I think from a, from a clinical standpoint, 
we can probably say that if there's an obvious range of motion or strength impairment, we would want to correct that if they're starting some new activity. Because uh, really the, the crux of the issue is that they're going from not doing a thing to now repeatedly doing a thing. And uh, a lot of structures in the human body have to adapt pretty quickly, even though we think, well, I'm just going for a run a couple of days a week. We, we routinely underestimate the, what running is you know, what, what it does to the body. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's probably more take the line and draw it very gradually is the, the, the recommendation that I give to novice runners. Okay, so you're new to running, um, so slow management of your, of your training and, and improving your strength deficits or range of movement. So my take on, on that, that actual person or that scenario is slightly different, actually. Um, I think sometimes we, we do probably, um, we, we try and wrap people in, in a bit of cotton wool and I think sometimes building a bit of resilience is good. So I would actually, with some of these runners, maybe give them something like hill running because we know that will get them naturally strong. So if you run up a hill, your tendons, your bones, your muscles, they're having to work under more load and more gravitational force. So that's one thing I do like to suggest to some people if they're like really comfortable and they're they're managing their running and it's going all really, really well. Um, because it just gives them an, another stimulus and it makes it interesting. Yeah, so that's that's one thing I would I would definitely advocate. And um, I agree with you in terms of the training load, but maybe um, not getting, I wouldn't jump on to um, strength and conditioning or trying to change deficits too quickly. I think I, I probably give them a generalized plan rather than a specific plan to be generally more athletic because i think if you can be more athletic as a runner and have more capacity of your muscles overall as a general rule um i think you get more range of movement you run more you feel you feel stronger and yeah so i'd probably push people a little bit more if they're really comfortable at four weeks um keep the training load the same but just make the stimulus a bit different yeah, and I definitely agree with your point about the strength conditioning. I think if you're starting a run program, uh, you probably don't want to also start uh, ramping up a strength training program at the exact same time. That's that's probably going to get you a little too close to overload. Um, I do. I definitely like the idea of the certain base period just to accommodate your body to running. Um, and I like. I mean, I like the hill running idea too. It's because it's it's a uh, it's basically a proxy of increasing running intensity and intensity being, you know, how hard it is to do, but, but it hills changing the biomechanics of the running a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I think it probably just comes down to how much are we doing? How frequently are we doing it? And what was their, their background to leading up to that, to be able to tolerate doing it. Love that. So I think, from there, I'd like to summarize. I think we agree that training load is an injury preventative measure. Um, so managing that carefully. Um, I think my my take on, on strength and conditioning in the early phase in terms of injury prevention is actually, I believe that if you can do um, some of that in a compound way, so you're working all the muscle groups and it's within your threshold and you can tolerate it along with your running i think that is a really important tool in terms of injury prevention um whereas i think jason you're saying if you find deficits if you find range of movement you might want to be looking at those as a 
as things to pick up on as like specifics, would you say? Yeah, I guess I would say if I found like a very stark mobility deficit side to side, um, I don't often find that in a, in a runner because the demands of running really aren't at end range for most joints in general. Uh, but I do often find strength deficits side to side just as, as measured isometrically. Uh, and that, that is often just from like previous injuries that maybe never fully got back to normal. Okay, so another thing to think about is like addressing those um, deficits you might have from previous injuries as an injury preventative measure. Cool. Wow, we've got three already, I think. That's, that's a lot <laughs> we have to summarize. But um, okay, let's, let's kind of move on. Let's go to like that intermediate runner. Like what's injury preventative for them? Yeah, at the intermediate level, now I would assume that they've had a running injury in the past, <laughs> just based on I think so, statistics. I think so. <laughs> so. So at this point, this is where I start to kind of um, build the program. Then if, if, if the purpose is prevention first, performance second, then it's, well, let's take the consideration of what happened in the past. So let's say it's, it's an Achilles tendinopathy, another um, really common running injury. And we know that the Achilles tendinopathies tend to happen with an increase, again, too much too soon, not necessarily the presence of speed work, but an increase in speed work in a short period of time. Uh, so speed work could be sprinting, track sessions, uh, even hill running actually, just because of the increased demand on the Achilles as you're running uphill. Uh, so let's say somebody had a history of that, uh, whether or not it was in the last 12 months. If it was within the last 12 months, then I'd, I'd probably definitely be on the more conservative side. If it was longer than that, I'd probably give them the benefit of the doubt. But um, I do believe that from, from a strength training standpoint, using strength training to bolster the area that you've had a, a running injury in the past is largely beneficial for us. Uh, that is a claim without evidence. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that, that's something we really need to address. So like the understanding around why strength training improves people's um, injuries or pain, we're still trying to deep dive into like why that actually happens. Like my theoretical understanding from just stuff that I've read and, and things that I understand, I think you get more motor unit recruitment in a muscle. Uh, a muscle is is innervated by a nerve and if you've got a muscle being innervated by a nerve and um, so the nerve sends a signal to a muscle now if you have that connection rather than the connection of the pain response that you know the nerve needs to, to, to send to your brain that is overriding and there's there's an element of like you know the signal from the the muscle contracting hits your brain initially quicker than the pain signal and I also think mechanically we, we're probably producing stiffer um, tendons and we're helping the muscles become better at managing the forces because when you run you know two to three times your body weight will go through one one leg right so that's my kind of like hypothesis but we're still kind of like trying to identify um, within the science and deep dive into the research why exactly people get better from strength training we're, we're kind of unsure yeah I would echo that I think to me, the explanation that sits the best with me is if you're over-preparing your body for the demands, then when you go and do running, it's kind of more submaximal now than it was previously maximal. Um, that said, uh, 
Jeez, I think it's it's going to be so hard to actually find it from from a, a, a science standpoint because to, you know designing a trial to have strength training in one group and a control in another group and making sure that everyone's training is the same and following them for a long enough period of time that's what will eventually happen. I have no idea when we'll see that study or that research come out, but theoretically, to to me, it's it doesn't really have much of a downside. Other than, yeah, it's another, what, 60 minutes per week or something to add to the training. But it also just makes you a healthier human anyway to do some resistance training. So um, it's one of those, like, it has a really great potential upside. Just probably doesn't have many downsides. Uh, we might as well do it. Yeah, I think I think you're completely right. And um, it's, a, it's, it's one that we... We know quite widely, you know, everybody ad, ad, advocates that we should be doing strength training, but the science, scientific studies um, at the moment need to be able to um, probably demonstrate in fine detail why, but we're not there yet and that's okay, um, but we still know it works. And um, from my perspective, you know, in, from clinic, it works really, really well. I've seen so much in terms of you know, really simple objective baseline measures. So that novice runner or that intermediate runner comes in, they do a test, try and lift the weight, lift it as many times as possible. It doesn't, you know, they don't get very far. They go away, they they work hard and build their muscle strength. They come back, they do the test and the, the, the pain is better. So that is basically a scientific study. Yeah. So I am, I am now peer reviewed and published just, 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 just yeah. now through this podcast. <laughs> And I think like one thing we haven't even mentioned yet is that what it does have very strong evidence in is that it improves performance. It, and so that's kind of why it's like there there is a net positive. Either way, your, your running economy or your running efficiency improves after a long, you know, six to 12 week bout of resistance training. So it definitely is doing some things. Uh, we don't we just don't fully understand it yet. And just to give people understanding of why their performance re- improves do you want to just go around yeah so the um so running economy is like one of the seems to be one of the key three um, performance indicators for running which is the economy is basically like how much energy is your body consuming at a sub-maximal pace so usually like below the lactate threshold this your running running speed is being tested and and the energetic cost of running at that point is we call it running economy so that improves after strength training. The mechanism is also unknown, but uh, it's hypothesized that your tendons just become more efficient at storing releasing energy. Uh, motor unit recruitment is improved from the muscles after about a strength training. And so essentially it then still goes back to, it takes a task and it makes it more submaximal. So you use less energy to run at the same pace and we yep. we think that it has something to do with your tendons um and your muscles have obviously been pulling on your tendons and developed um tendons that hopefully uh, are better at producing and releasing energy when you run um cool so all in all i think we have you know we've we've talked about making sure like you have like a nice good training load that's uh, you know slowly slowly improving slowly increasing um secondly we we kind of said looking at uh obviously injury history and and trying to address any sort of changes in that 
in that specific body part. And I, I kind of put in there a caveat, which is like, actually probably make somebody a little bit stronger. So giving them a different stimulus and running up hills or doing some strength work. And we've talked about running economy. Um, and with this intermediate runner, what other things can we do? Because I've seen something on your stories, which actually made me want to message you recently. You were at a conference talking about oh, iron. Oh, you know what? <laughs> That was that was kind of a cheeky slide from uh, from a PT in the United States that, that uh, I know Derek Miles. Uh, so he he both he actually kind of put up this this guideline for iron supplementation right alongside his strength training supplementation, which he called topical iron, which was some of his jokes. Mm. Um, but from the endurance training standpoint, certainly uh, if somebody is iron deficient, I mean, geez, that's that's more of a, like, that's a medical side of things. You really have to address that and not just iron, but energy deficit in general. We know that, that, um, the relative energy deficit in sport red S, which was formerly known as the, the female athlete triad. Uh, this is, this is basically a condition that's common in endurance athletes, whether it's intentional or not. Oftentimes it is not intentional where the amount of just caloric expenditure exceeds their caloric intake. And so your body is operating in a deficit. Uh, and that, that is a high risk for injury, uh, bone stress injuries, especially there. Yeah. So injury prevention for me around like that intermediate runner, I feel is like when they're quite, um, new to the sport and they're like really passionate and the balance of passion, you know, the harmonious passion of the sport is, is, is slightly changed. And I think the key thing for me is like, are they doing are they doing the basic stuff um so my injury preventative strategy with this intermediate runner i would probably put in there you know you you talked about iron supplementation but i'd probably say supplementing their day in terms of their diet and how they're eating um because you're you're you you've got habits eating habits which are probably habits for the person you previously were now you're a completely different person and athlete you have to change your your habits what do you think that's, yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, the, the demands of endurance training, even just from like general RD recommendations for like the distribution of carbohydrates, proteins and fats are, are going to be different than just like uh, maybe a non-exercising human operating throughout their day. We need more carbs. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think people do get um, caught up in trying not to get too you know there's there's always this like myth and running where you don't want to get too heavy you know all this kind of stuff and and they actually forget the micros and like you know the vitamins the minerals and the iron as we discussed so um and we know a lot of runners are vegan um which you know in terms of b12 and the the you know all these little things so an injury prevention strategy which i'm really advocating is is definitely looking at how you know you intake what you intake to support your training yeah, that's that's a great point. Nice. Okay, cool. Um, do you feel that equipment is um, is a, is an injury preventative strategy? I think this is one of the biggest things that we can discuss, and um, it's a it's a you know it's it's quite an interesting subject. I think we have to know where we stand in terms of as clinicians. We we have a specific viewpoint, and then. You've got the scientific viewpoint of people in labs. Um, so we're out in the real world and 
they call it uh, so yeah you've got in vivo or in vitro so you know we why are we we're in vitro aren't we are we in vitro yeah I always I always mix them up so I, I use uh, efficacy and effectiveness instead <laughs> <laughs> basically one's in the lab one's outside so what which one's the efficacy Efficacy would be in the lab, effectiveness is in the real world. There you go. So basically it means that if you do a scientific study in a lab, so you put somebody in a spe specific piece of equipment and it, re it works really well in, in the lab, does it do the same outside of the lab? So um, Jason, over to you. Does equipment prevent injury? Well, so we'll, um, we'll probably zero in on footwear first. I know that we're both, we're both big Nike footwear fans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, as much as I, I love footwear and it's a, a side hobby for me, uh, I don't believe that it really affects injury prevention in any significant way. Uh, now, I do believe that it can, it can lead to some injuries, but I, I think we're probably focusing on the wrong thing by saying equipment when it still goes back to doing too much too soon as, as in a training load error. So you, we, we do see that different types of shoes just shift the stress on the body. So something like a more traditional neutral trainer, uh, that's going to have a different effect on the body compared to say a minimalist shoe like a track spike. When you're in a minimalist shoe, you're in general, you're loading the foot and ankle structures in the foot and ankle more. And when you're in more of a maximalist or traditional shoe, foot and ankle is a little bit more cushioned and protected, but your, your loading at the knee and the hip increases a little bit. Um, so I think then when it comes down to, uh, are we going to be able to prevent injury as in all injuries? No, but if we were specifically talking about an injury, say it was somebody who had a metatarsal you know, foot stress fracture, um, well, if they've had a bunch of those in the past, I don't think it would be worth it for them to really try to go after minimalist footwear just because of the risk associated with that. It's, we know that it's going to be loading the foot a little bit more. At a certain point, you maybe want to use footwear to help be protective against certain things and that you're just shifting stress away from that area because you're more confident that the area that the stress is going to go to now is going to hold up compared to where that stress might have gone if you didn't shift it away. So I think it's a really long way of saying I don't think the equipment itself is going to prevent injuries, but we can use it to shift things around a little bit for on a case by case basis. Love that summary. Um, again, I'm going to have to disagree. I think equipment does. I think it does simply because, as you said, like if I go, for instance, I, I'm just going to put I'm just going to put it out there. My specific uh, case. So I was. I've been training, I'm training hard, I'm trying to get fitter, stronger, I want to do more miles now. I, I changed my footwear and I started wearing, um, so I was initially wearing Invincibles and Pegasus. So these are like the Nike trainers, which Nike running trainers, which uh, are slightly softer. So the Invincibles have a soft sole and then the Pegasus is, is a midsole, but again, it's softer, but they don't have carbon plates. Okay, so and they, they don't have a big drop, so the heel drop's not very high. So I then did a session with um, Vaporflies, and I really felt the difference in my calf muscles, and um, I stopped doing the sessions in the Vaporflies, and I've done more miles wearing the softer shoes without the carbon fiber plate. Now, 
the thing about as you said before it's like certain shoes and certain certain shoes produce forces in different places so with a shoe with a carbon fiber plate i believe that they will you will feel that in your calf muscles i feel that you, you genuinely feel like your calf muscles are working a lot so i have a theory there uh because of the, the original like lab studies on the vapor flies showed that the demand of the foot and ankle was actually a bit less compared to the control shoes but i do hear pretty frequently people's calves are just smoked after they're running in vapor flies alpha flies any of the like super shoes my theory is that when you're in those shoes you're running faster when you're running faster, I've heard this. I've heard this. Yeah. So the so when you run faster, your calf muscles have to work at a higher speed, higher velocity, um, and that means that they there's more demand because they're trying to produce force, the same force but really really quickly. Um, I've heard this, but I would also say like I did a hill session, like a really fast hill sessions in soft shoes, and it was yeah, and and I've and I've experienced it with quite a few runners. Um, yep. Now with the elite runner. Would you like if you have an elite runner, what like what's would you use any shoes as an injury preventative strategy or not at all? You still don't think that shoes would be because you, you have those elite runners who have, you know, they they're running 200 miles a week or etc. And they won't wear super shoes unless they're in a race. Yeah, it, I, I think at this stage, when I do some consults with more elite runners, uh, we have to first talk about are we prioritizing 1A as injury prevention or 1A as performance and 1B is going to be the other one Yeah. because we actually at a certain point we can't have both Yeah. Uh, and, and I would say most elite runners are probably prioritizing performance above injury prevention at least the ones that I've encountered because that's kind of like the well if I gain a couple you know if I gain 2 or 4% then I'll be that much better or that much closer to winning um at that stage, I think we've, in the, the last few years with like the boom of the super shoes, jeez, uh, I think it's, it would be hard to not recommend that they find the one that feels best for them. <laughs> it's like you have, you have all these different brands, unless you're sponsored, then you only have one option. Uh, but otherwise, if you're not sponsored, you've got all these different brands, go to the store, try on the Vaporfly, the, you know, the Endorphin Pro, the whatever, like the top version of each of these brands super shoes and uh geez those are probably the ones you race in now uh, now then you say like well if they're going to race in them shouldn't you also prepare your body a little bit by training in them uh and that i actually do believe and the biggest barrier is that they're expensive <laughs> so training in them uh that's a big barrier because now this this shoe that maybe gets what like 300 kilometers or so before you're supposed to retire them maybe a little bit more i just i'd probably done like 300 miles in a, in a pair of vaporfly four percents because i don't want to let them go uh now you've you basically saying like well this this shoe that you should help you should use to help prepare your body for racing uh, get a few pairs of these so so that you can keep the same loading profile that there's going to be when you're racing um it's tough. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tough question. I'm, okay. I'm interested to hear your take on this. I think um, definitely exposing yourself to the shoes that you're racing in is an injury preventative strategy. So if you're listening, I think that's a big thing. I think 
when you do get some elite athletes, I think they will, in terms of injury prevention, I think they, they're so dialed in with quite a lot of things and they know um, just the subtleties of, of things. So I would almost say if you are somebody who's elite, who's training hard all the time, um, be aware that like changing your shoes it needs to be something that you probably do consistently. So you're getting that wear of the shoe and you're feeling that shoe more consistently. Um, but also, yeah, with the super shoes, you know, just putting them on for speed sessions only and large speed sessions, that can be a big spike to your body and that, that can definitely cause injury. So when you do put wear these shoes, just making sure you're doing it transitionally and you're doing it often. And I think... I, I genuinely believe that the foot, the forces we have at our foot, um, they can sometimes be buffered and subtly changed by the shoe you're wearing. Um, and I think that's important to prevent injury. And um, yeah, I genuinely think you do run faster in super shoes or shoes that you feel are light and they give you that that kind of propulsion. So just being aware of that, being aware of like tempering your pace is, is probably something you can do to prevent injury. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I just think overall, we, we you know, when spikes probably came out initially, um, all those years ago, you probably yeah. did have some people have some injuries, right? Because they went from just really, I don't know, flat shoes, you know, actual like brogues, to, to, to spike so so yeah this is funny i actually uh for, for a presentation i had a few months ago i was looking up some old pictures of running spikes like the very first ones and even like a quick google search this like early running shoe spike and it just is like a leather shoe with two nails in the <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, like i think they were just like used to their feet hurting back then <laughs> yeah i mean literally no sole underneath just that spike probably was going up into somebody's foot um so i think with with all with all kind of uh changes in technology we will have changes in the sport changes in speed changes in injury and i think we just have to be really aware that that's part of of like maybe you know people are you know feel like it's not progress but i do think things have to progress and things have to change and that's part of sport um so well, let's 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 go for one more. So one more injury prevention tool for that elite athlete. So we've gone from our beginner, our novice, which are pretty similar, to be honest. You know, our beginner and novice, we 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 kind of change things very slightly. Um, but with our elite athlete, I feel like there's there's one more thing maybe we could put in there. I, I know something I would talk about, but I'm going to add over to you, Jason. Was there something, an injury prevention strategy you would use with an elite? So I'm not allowed to choose uh, pick your parents well, right? <laughs> yeah, genetics. No. Um, I think one one thing that I, I always tell people, and I've, I've like kind of borrowed this as a concept from uh, Greg Lehman, the, the popular Canadian physio, is stick to a plan, but then know when to not stick to the plan. So it's, it's having, having some idea of where's your end point, where are you now, how do you gradually get up to that point, requires some semblance of a plan. But if it's Tuesday morning and you're supposed to do, what, a, a 10K tempo run, and you wake up and you start walking around and you're like, yeah, my calf just doesn't really feel great today. I got a rest day tomorrow, 
I got this workout today. <laughs> do you stick to the plan and do the workout or do you know when to not stick to the plan, use your rest day today and try it again tomorrow? I think that's when a lot of runners are so focused on like adhering to a certain thing. And this is you know, something we chatted about, like having such a uh, very tight structure uh, and sometimes your body just can't hold on to a structure like that. Certain things happen. Work stress happens. Life stress happens. You didn't sleep well the night before. Um, the effect of training on your body was just harder than you expected in the previous week. It's okay to not listen to the plan sometimes. But largely, you want to have an idea of what you're doing. Nice. I think um, that's a, that, those are really good points. I think training and, you know, a training plan is an experiment. I always say to people, like, you know, if you can hit 85 to 90% of the experiment, you'll get the benefits. But if you hit 100% and your body can't tolerate it, you get none of the benefits. So um, one thing that I definitely advocate and is probably a caveat of, of and just an offshoot of what you're saying, really, I think is the psychology. I think certain people or certain individuals or certain athletes they want to hit 100% because of the psychology of being perfect. So I would, my injury prevention with um, an elite athlete is finding out their take on what performance looks like to them. So the psychology of, of performance. And um, I do this a lot actually with uh, novice runners as well because they'll, they'll want to get faster really quickly, but their body may not be able to tolerate that speed in terms of, you know, your heart and lungs progress so much faster than your actual you know your skeletal your bones your muscles your tendons so um yeah the psychology of sport i think is so important and um during my undergrad we did a few psychology modules so just discussing that with with clients do you do that often i do and i actually find that um a lot of runners by nature have the personality that's very like numbers oriented schedule driven uh type a so it's it's (laughs) yeah exactly um and that's and i I think we've said about the novice runners is especially important too is like um really assessing at the start what are your what are your expectations for this and is that actually reasonable from a like what are what do you want to get out of this um because sometimes i mean if somebody's new to support they just don't know what to expect maybe they think it's like you can get to a marathon in six weeks um, we know that that's not that reasonable, but we don't know what where somebody's coming from 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 that standpoint. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That's that's so true, and um, yeah, it's just it's it's just really challenging. And injury prevention's, uh, you know, it's for me, it's um, it's always about balance and trying to give you as much information as possible, and being really honest that we are slightly unsure to exactly why people sometimes get injured and we know that um, the intrinsic and extrinsic elements to injury so things that influence you from an internal perspective as Jason alluded to like stress you're, you might maybe don't absorb the training session the same way um, you might have yeah pushy parents like Jason said or you know you might have um, an eating disorder or all these things play a factor into intrinsic and then we have the extrinsic things um, as I said to you before I think footwear so wearing shoes that are not beneficial or wearing shoes that are going to put more force and load in an area that you're maybe um, slightly weaker um, you know you've got the time of day is it dark the terrain 
um, you've got the, the type of um, training you're doing. So you might be doing a training session that you know you can't do and you're doing it with teammates who are much faster than you. So all those are the extrinsic. So you put them together, you have some intrinsic, extrinsic factors and combine they, they may cause an injury. We can't say one thing specifically causes an injury. Um, and injury prevention is, yeah, it's a complex myriad. So just to summarize, I think we've got, um, so number five, we were talking about, oh, let me remember now. We were talking What's about psychology. psychology. Number four, we had, uh, oh, it's nutrition. Yeah, psychology, nutrition. Um, number three, um what did we have we had training load we'll put that in i think that was number yeah, two sounds right <laughs> yeah i think that was number two training load oh no strength you talk you talked oh, yeah, about you training. talked about um so jason jason said he would work on specifics where i think maybe i would just work on making you stronger overall so just slightly two different um approaches but ultimately getting stronger um Having a manageable training load, we've talked about, which we really both put our hats on that. Um, and then calorie, you know, we talked about nutrition, calorie intake, number five. What's number five? Mm. First one, training load. <laughs> First one was training load. Second one was, second one was uh, training load. Um, working on strength, uh, tr work, training load, working on strength deficits. I said running uphill, uh, we've talked about nutrition, psychology, and per se, let's say equipment. So you can yeah. mess around with shoes, you know, have have an idea, you know, Jason's talked about that low profile shoe affecting your calf muscles and a higher profile shoe affecting your, your knees, hips, and that's very well known. So um, if you have a hip problem, you might want to wear a low profile shoe. If you have a calf problem, you might want to wear a high profile shoe, softer shoe um jason thank you so much are yeah, there absolutely. are there any other things that you would say to our listeners you know your kind of last thoughts on this podcast yeah i think we we covered a lot of the the scope of injury prevention that i typically talk about um, one thing i would say is that if you do everything right and you still get injured it's okay don't feel bad <laughs> we, yeah again, we haven't haven't figured it out yet there have been a number of times that I personally think that I've done the right thing and wound up with a running injury. So at the end of the day, that's, that's why it really is just, it's, it's, it's statistic gods. You're, you're uh, just putting yourself in position to succeed, but uh, the vast majority of running injuries can always be rehabbed. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there's um, only so much you can do and then find a really good physio. That's true. I think there's two on this podcast, um, but <laughs> I've actually got a caveat. I've actually got somewhere I want to take this. Recovery, ice, heat, acupuncture, foam rolling. Tell me about them. Because I know these. this is a subject I love, but I've actually kind of skipped over it. But let's let's dive, deep dive into it for a good five, if that's okay. Oh, absolutely. My, uh, my big thing is, uh, do you like ice? Use ice. You like heat? Yeah. Use heat. Yeah. You don't like needles? Don't go with acupuncture. Okay. Person's choice. Yeah. I think the, the non-specific effects of a lot of these recovery modalities are probably the main reason why they help people. So I, I typically just lead people towards what has worked for you in the past. Um, 
from from my standpoint, it's almost like the prevention versus treatment thing. If I can prevent them from having to use recovery things by having good training that doesn't, you know, blow their legs up for a couple of days, then that's probably the, the main way to go. But inevitably, <laughs> inevitably, once you're sore after a session, um, you know, this is where the nutrition and sleep as as the two probably strongest forms of recovery really come into play. And then anything else that feels good that's worked for you in the past, have at it as long as it's not too expensive or requires too much time. Do you think they prevent injury? The things that we've uh, No. <laughs> I agree, Jason. I definitely agree. So if you're going out there with your gun and, you know, hitting your leg and, and, you know, pulsating your leg and you're taking ice baths and you're going to an infrared sauna. Um, physiologically, you might recover a little bit better. You might feel a bit better, but there's no evidence to say that it, it, it prevents injury. Um, so yeah. let's just um, leave those in the cupboard. And um, if they make you feel good, they make you feel good. But for this podcast, just to highlight, they do not prevent injury. There's no scientific evidence to say they do. Um, my name's been Manny Avola. Jason, you have been amazing. Jason out here in New York doing bits. Um, and it's just been nice to have a conversation about injury prevention and really put everything down on the line. And um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment, subscribe, um, give us some stars on any platform that's on all the platforms. Um, and Jason, thank you again. Yeah, Manny, thank you again for having me on. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. That was the Running Lifestyle Culture podcast with Jason Turo. It was supposed to be episode two, but I decided to push this one back. But it's a good one. Injury prevention. As I said, that was Jason Turo, Manny Avola. Please do leave me some five-star reviews on those platforms, Apple, Spotify. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Big love. Thank you for listening. And uh, we'll see you soon.